Well, good morning, everybody. We are working our way through the book of uh, Philippians, and we are in chapter 3. I'm just starting out in chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, open your Bibles to Philippians, actually chapter 2, actually chapter 1. So just as a point of review, the book of Philippians, I'm just going to quickly run through, just get everybody up to speed. Um, so the book of Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's written to a church at Philippi. Philippi is actually a relatively small town. It's a mining town. Um, and Paul is in prison. So Paul has been in prison for almost four years at this point. Um, and the church at Philippi, which he helped found, uh, is concerned about him. So they send him a gift uh, with an individual cut, uh, by the name of Epaphrodites. And they wanted to know how he was doing. And he responds in a very unusual way. So as a person called to bring the gospel uh, to the Gentiles, to go out into the nations, he's been locked up for four years, you would think he would be discouraged, and he's not. Um, so he starts off with this letter back to the church at Philippi in verse uh, 3 of chapter 1 by saying how, much he, how thankful he is. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. So he comes out right away with this, thankful attitude um, and then he progresses to talk about joy the joy that he has um, in what God is doing and you take a step back and you go what do you mean that you're joyful in what God is doing and he reflects on the fact that while he's in jail even though that's not what he had that wasn't the vision he had for what God would have for him that the, that the people the people that he is chained to are coming to know the gospel, and because the people who, who he is chained to, literally the guards that are chained to his wrists, are coming to know the gospel, because of that, then people all across Rome are becoming to know the gospel. So he sees that God is working. Um, and so he's joyful in that. Uh, he has, but he still has a heart for this church. So we are now getting into the section where he starts to give instruction. Um, so, but just as review, uh, so that we are building toward that, because everything that he writes builds toward that. In verse, I, I asked the question in your sheet, if you got a sheet, you know, who is the initiator of our salvation? So Christianity is the one unique religion in that we are not saved by our works. It is not um, on a scale where the more good we do, the more likely we are to go to heaven. God has a standard, and that standard's perfection. And so you can either never sin, so that's an option, um, good luck with that. You can either never sin, and you can get into heaven, or you can trust somebody to die for you who never sinned. So those are your two options, right? And so Christianity, God by his grace gives us Christ who lived a perfect life, never sinned, died anyway, didn't, didn't, shouldn't have died. Um, and so we can accept that for ourselves. Uh, but frequently when we talk about our faith, we talk about our faith. So I wanted to point out a few things. In verse 1, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Who is the focus of that verse? Is it you? And the answer is no. God is the initiator of your salvation, and he is the one who empowers your sanctification. So it is God who is working. That doesn't mean you don't have any responsibilities. We'll get to that in a minute. 
but he is the initiator. How do we grow in love? We talk all the time about trying to be loving, right? We will, you will know we are Christians by our love. Was this great 70s song. So, you know, wear your hippie attire and sing that around the campfire, right? Um, how do we grow in love? Verse 9 of chapter 1 says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Doesn't that sound wonderful? But with knowledge and all discernment. So there's some truth in there too, right? So I, if you don't know who I am, I'm kind of a black and white. I like truth. I'm not a fuzzy, warm person. Um, and so um, our love abounds in truth and discernment and knowledge, right? So if you want to become a more loving person, the way that you make your love abound is you understand what God's word is and you help others to understand it as well. Right? Abounding in love. Is the work complete in our salvation or in others at the point of salvation? Chapter 2, this is where our role comes into this deal. God is the initiator. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, though therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are working out. Remember, this is a mining town. This is the idea of getting the silver or the gold out of the ore. It's there. God put it there. And we are to work it out, refine it, make it shine. So you are working out your salvation and then in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, God is the one who is empowering that activity, that movement toward purity. Right? And then how do we respond? In verse 14 of chapter 2, do all things without grumbling and questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. So we have now transitioned. He gives in the, in the last part of chapter 2, he gives a couple of examples. You see Timothy um, as a fantastic example of somebody who's working out his salvation in fear and trembling. Um, we see Epaphroditus as well. Um, so now we move into chapter 3, and he's going to give us some instruction. Um, so application is where we begin here. And so reading in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. So as we're working out our salvation in fear and trembling, what is to be our attitude? It is always to be joyful, right? This is God's commands are not intended to cramp your joy. Since the beginning of time, what, what did the devil, what was the lie that the devil told Adam and Eve? That you would have greater joy and greater satisfaction if you disobeyed God and ate that fruit. Right? And that is the same lie that we are told today. I have talked to many people who say, yeah, I would be a Christian, but I'm having too much fun in life right now. And I don't want to stop having fun. And that is the lie of the devil. The belief that you somehow would have greater joy outside of God's will versus inside of God's will is what the devil has been doing since day one. Right? And so he says here, rejoice in the Lord because he wants you to understand the greatest joy, the, the greatest joy that you can have is inside God's will. Right? 
And then he goes on to say, I want to write the same things to you. He's going to give us some warnings, some concerns, some things to look out for because it's safe for you, to protect you. These are challenges that you are going to see and pitfalls that you will come upon that he wants to warn you about. And the first one is religious people. So look in verse 2. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Do those sound like religious people to you? And that's what he's referring to. So he's actually referring to the Pharisees and the Jews who have not accepted Christ. And he calls them dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Mutilation of the flesh, what he's really saying, he's talking about circumcision. So if you don't know the tradition, the Jewish tradition of circumcision, um, on the eighth day, every young boy was to have the foreskin uh, cut off. And that was a tradition that was unique to the Jews and then spread. You know, so most people today do this. It was actually, um, it was actually there were some health benefits to it as well. Uh, but this was to uniquely identify the Jewish people. And so when the Jewish people came upon others that wanted to be a part of their society, even if they were adults, they had to be circumcised as adults in order to join into that family unit, if you will, or that religious system. The males had to all be circumcised. So this was a requirement to become Jewish, um, to be able to enter into their uh, fellowship. And so he calls them mutilators of the flesh. So he's saying, listen, you have applied something that was an outward sign that was supposed to signify an inward reality and you've made it something that it wasn't. And that is somehow that if you were circumcised, you automatically got into heaven. That that was an outward thing, that all, that's all it took. And that's not what it was intended. It was false religion to say, listen, because I am Jewish, I have this heritage, and because I was circumcised on the eighth day, nothing else matters, I go to heaven. I don't know if any of you came out of the Catholic system, but where I grew up, I grew up in an Irish Catholic town. And so almost everybody was Irish and almost everybody was Catholic. Then I come to this town and everybody's Dutch and Reformed. It was like weird, right? My parents were Dutch and Reformed. And so I came here and I thought, oh my goodness, everybody's weird like my parents. Um, so it was a really unique experience for me. But where I grew up, it was Irish and Catholic. Everybody went to Mass on Saturday night. And then afterwards, they drank wine with the, the priest. It was really odd um, in high school. Um, and it was in high school. Um, so it was this, but one of the things that the Catholic Church says is, listen, if you've been baptized in the Catholic Church, you are saved. It's an outward sign, right? So is baptism wrong? And the answer is no, baptism's not wrong. Circumcision is wrong. No, circumcision not wrong. It's a, it's a great practice. We do all sorts of things in order to try to signify things. But when the sign becomes the significant, instead of the thing that it's pointing toward, that's where we get a problem, right? And so the Catholic Church has pointed, is, we as the Reformed, the Protestants, we still, um, in the Protestant, in the Reformed tradition at least, they still baptize babies as a covenant toward pushing that, listen, we as parents are going to encourage our children toward Christ. They still have to make a profession of faith. Protestant Church does not believe uh, baptism uh, saves anybody. It's simply a covenant that you're going to raise your child in that. Here at, at uh, New Hope and in the Baptist uh, tradition, what we do is we do infant dedication. So we say as parents, 
listen, we're going to dedicate this child, we're going to raise him up in the church, and we hope that Christ uh, will come to dwell in them, right? Um, so it's an outward sign. We do these outward signs, but these outward signs cannot replace the inward reality. And that's what had happened in the Jewish system. So you had these mutilators of the flesh, evildoers. So they, they did all sorts of things that looked good from the outside, but that were actually evil. And so you might say, well, I know all sorts of people who aren't believers who do good things. Does God still believe that those good things that they do is evil? And the answer is it is still evil in the sense that they're done for the wrong motive. Right? They're done to glorify themselves and not glorify God. And so when he refers to them as evildoers, he's saying, listen, even though they do all these acts, these outward acts, they're done for the wrong reason. They're done to glorify themselves not glorify God. In that sense, they're evil. So I asked the question, and if you, if you want to look at, well, it's worth it. So Galatians, go to Galatians quickly. Galatians, it's an interesting book, and, and frequently uh, in Galatians 3, there is a passage that is misinterpreted. So it might be useful. So Galatians, in Galatians, the same thing is happening. So Paul writes to this church at Galatia, that there have been Jewish people who've come in and they've tried to say, listen, in addition to accepting Christ as Savior and Lord, you also have to do all these things, right? You have to keep all the traditions of the, Jew, of the Jews. And he says in chapter 3, he corrects that. In verse 1, he says, you know, he's, he's really soft. He's really careful with people. He's very gentle. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Would this preaching get away in our day? I mean, would we get away with this in our day? I, I don't think we could. But anyway, it, it, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, right? So he, he's saying, listen, don't go away from Christ as the center. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? When the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you, you have received Christ's righteousness, right? You no longer need to earn anything. And yet they think that somehow it's going to be perfected by keeping certain traditions. Verse 3. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. That's that reference that if you fail, if you sin in one way, you're responsible for the failure of everything. That's that requirement of perfection, right? Which we cannot attain. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through Faith. We receive salvation through faith and faith alone. And then the verse that kind of gets twisted, but you, if you see the whole chapter, you understand it in context. Therefore, there is no, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is not based on our ethnicity. It's not based on us doing certain things. Our salvation is based on our understanding of 
who Christ is, what he did, and our acceptance of that for ourselves. Right? And so the same thing's going on in Galatia as what's going on in Philippians and Philippi. Go back to uh, chapter 3 of... And if you really want to look at what, what Paul thought, or what Jesus, how Jesus addresses the religious elite of his day, um, go to Matthew 23 and read 1 through 7, 13, and 16. I mean, he says, woe to you, like 10 times in that passage, right, of these religious elite who are trying to mislead uh, those into a system rather than into a relationship with Christ. So I put, what outward acts of religion do those in our day look for? Security. Um, so what, are, what ways do, do our religious system mislead us? Right? Um, so one thing would be an event. So a baptism. I already mentioned the Catholic Church and baptism. So it's an event. Um, that does not provide... It, baptism's great, but it does not... It's a sign of something we intend to do. It's, a, it's an intentional thing, but it doesn't assure baptism. Um, an altar call. So when I was uh, about 12 years old, I was in an E-free church, there was an altar call. And I felt the need to make a public proclamation, which is actually a commandment. Um, and so I stood up and went to the front and confessed Christ. Um, I had known Christ since I, before I remember. I don't remember a point in time where I didn't believe that Jesus Christ was my Savior and Lord. But that was a public profession of that, right? But that altar call wasn't a bad thing, but it wasn't the only thing. It didn't save me. It wasn't assurance. It was just a moment in time, right? And so it was a good thing, but it wasn't something that I would point back to and go, hey, I can live whatever way I want to, but I did that. You understand the difference between that? So an altar call, a public profession. Um, they're all good, but they don't assure us of salvation. Uh, moral living. Yeah, so we, we look at the Mormon culture frequently and we go, wow, those people have it together, right? I mean, they are hardworking. They, they, they don't break any laws. They don't have any crime. Um, does that mean that they're saved? And the answer is no. Um, so if you look, uh, one great biblical example, Matthew 19, um, the rich young ruler, you remember that story, this, this young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what can I do to earn salvation? Wrong question, right? Wrong question from the beginning. Jesus gives him alternative A, don't break any law. <clears throat> Keep the law perfectly. Don't ever sin. Interestingly, he responds and says, which ones? And Jesus lists them. Actually, the last six, the second book of the Old Testament, or the, uh, 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 the, the Ten Commandments, so uh, Commandment 5 through 10, Jesus lists, and he says, I've kept them all. And you go, wow, this guy's living a really good life, right? I mean... He's really done well. And then Jesus says, sell everything you have and come follow me. The first book of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second book is love your neighbor as yourself. He was doing pretty good with his neighbor. He just was in love with himself instead of God, right? And he walks away from Christ. You can tell that even though he lived a very moral life and that he was very blessed financially, he knows himself he doesn't have eternal life, Right? And so moral life doesn't do it for you. Um, head knowledge. So the Pharisees memorized the first five books of the Bible. 
right? They understood the scriptures like no one else, um, and yet um, were not saved. Obviously, um, not saved if you look at Matthew 23. Uh, James 2:19 says that the demons believe that Jesus is the Christ and shudder. Does that make you a little nervous um, when you think about head knowledge, right? Head knowledge is not sufficient. You need to understand your own fallenness, your own need. Confess that need and accept Jesus Christ as Savior Lord. Religious activity. So uh, the first teaching experience I had in Orange City, I was asked to substitute for an eighth grade class at a, a different church that we went to. And the first question I asked the eighth grade class is, how many of you have gone to church every morning and evening all of your life? And every single one in the class raised their hand. And the second question I asked is, how many of you believe that's sufficient for you to get to heaven? And every single one of them raised their hand. And I went, uh-oh. <laughs> we have to have a conversation, right? Um, so religious activity, church attendance, church leadership, um, doesn't do it. Uh, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, so Paul is warning them, like, um, don't be deceived, okay? This will be safe for you if you understand what we should be looking for. So what, what should we be looking for? Um, verse 3. And, and it, just in case you weren't thinking about coming to Sunday school second semester, First uh, John chapter 3. So the Gospel of John we did a few uh, uh, years ago. Uh, the Gospel of John is for unbelievers so that they may believe that Jesus is the Christ and through him may be saved. That you may know that Jesus is the Christ. The first epistle of John is that you may know that you know <laughs> So it's actually written to believers as a test to understand your own faith. And so that's what we're going to do the first month after Christmas, is to walk through these tests. Um, and they are not to test others. Not, we don't look at this and go, oh, I don't know about that person. They're to test ourselves, right? And so they are tests. Well, this is kind of a shortened version of that. Uh, verse 3 of Philippians 3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what does circumcision refer to here? He says we are the circumcision. So again, circumcision was this outward sign of an inward reality. We were set apart. We were purified. We were sealed for God. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. So when what he's saying is he's contrasting them against the Jews, and he's saying, you are the true circumcision. You are the ones who are truly set aside. You are the ones who are truly um, those God's children. So how does this manifest? How does this inward reality manifest true faith? Um, it manifests in three different ways. So true believers are worshipers. So you look at the very first thing he says, that we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. So we are worshipers. So if, if you're going to ask yourself the question, do, am I truly a believer? You're, you've got to say to yourself, do I desire to please and glorify God? Am I driven by the indwelling Spirit 
to honor God and come and worship him. Give him the value that he deserves. Is that the desire of my heart? Right. You'll notice that the first, the negative was all outward. You'll notice here that these are all inward. Right? Is the desire of your heart to give God glory? Or is the desire of your heart to glorify yourself? Number two, he says that true worshipers, they and they glory in Christ Jesus. So true believers glory in Christ. So they give all the credit to Jesus for their salvation. They boast in Christ and Christ alone. Right? So they don't they don't say, listen, I'm, I'm a really good person. I, I never know how uh, old you people are. Um, so Tanya Harding. There was a movie on Tanya Harding. Do you remember the Do you know who Tanya Harding was? She was a skater in the Olympics. She hired her boyfriend to go take the other Nancy Kerrigan out with a club right before she went out to skate. Um, there was this great movie about her lately um, where the parents are really, really great people. You should watch it. It's awesome. Um, anyway, in an interview shortly after she had that done and they caught her in this thing, she, they asked her, what would you like the people of this nation to know about you? And you know what she said? I'm a good person. I want the people to know I am a good person. Right? Um, really? You know, really? Uh, so, so we don't take credit. We don't want to glorify ourselves. We, if you are a true believer, you glory in Christ. You say, listen, I am a sinner. And I screw up all the time. And I struggle in so many ways. And I am so appreciative of the fact that even though I am lost... Jesus Christ died for me. We give the glory to Christ in our lives. And then number three, true believers put no confidence in the flesh. This is kind of the same thing. They do not rely on their own ability to please God, but constantly they try to point to Christ. They know that their salvation is not dependent on their work, but the work of Christ. So true believers, this is an internal, this is a heart, this is an understanding Right of who we are, and then you're a true believer. I have like five pages of notes, and I knew I wasn't going to get through half of this, so I'm skipping to see you know. Um, verse four says, "Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a, Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews." As to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So if there was anybody who could believe that they could earn their salvation, it would have been Paul. Right? He was, he kept the law perfectly. At least for everybody on the outside to see. No one ever saw him do anything that violated the law. Right? Even his tradition, his parents kept the law by having him make sure that he was circumcised on the eighth day. And not on the seventh day or not on the ninth day, but on the eighth day, right? The exact law. He was a Jew. He was of the favored tribe. He was of Benjamin, which was Rachel's children, um, which was the favored wife of Jacob, Israel, right? So he was of a favored tribe. Uh, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He stood for everything that the Jewish nation stood for. Right? We are the people of God. As to the law of Pharisee, 
He absolutely had the Old Testament, the first five books memorized, and most of the rest of it. The guy was so knowledgeable and dedicated to his study of the word as, a, as zealous a persecutor of the church. He fought false religion zealously. He was going to uphold the Jewish religion. And he thought Christianity was false. So he was going to put it down. Right? And so he was zealous. He persecuted the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. There was nobody that could point to the law and show that he had in any way in front of them, in an outward way, sin. Pretty good little resume, right? Um, you know, what our traits do we point to in our day? Uh, so, never miss church. It was funny, you know, uh, when I first met my wife's uh, grandfather, he said, I don't like this guy. He's going to take you away from here, right? Because I wasn't from the area. And I told him that I was Dutch and from originally from the Oostburg. My parents were from the Oostburg area. And then, then he kind of liked me a little more, right? Because I wasn't, you know, Italian or some crazy person like that, right? So, um, so anyway, you know, we, we do put value in certain ethnicities for some reason. So, um, uh, we, we put value in, in knowledge. We put value in moral living, just like uh, the Jews did of that time. But, but Paul has the right perspective. He comes to understand at the point of his salvation uh, that that is not worth much. And so in verse 7 he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So how did those traits benefit Paul? He was actually highly honored in the Jewish society because he was a Jew of Jews. Right? He was highly honored because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was highly honored. Right? But at the end of the day, all they did was condemn him to hell. And he understood that. So how much value did he put in those things after his conversion? He put no value in them. He didn't go, listen, now I have Christ and I have all this, so I should be better than everybody else. He said, no, they have no value. They are, they are rubbish. The actual, uh, the actual word here is dirty rags. It, 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 it could be manure. It could be anything as nasty as you could possibly think. He's saying, listen, all of these things about me I, I, I give zero value right he knew they were worthless he was not concerned about their loss only in the salvation of Christ and so he turns in verse 9 and he says and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own so not depending on my own pedigree at all that comes from the law but that which comes through Christ the faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So, so Paul has lost. He loses all of this status in his society. He puts off all of these things that he used to think made him special. He puts them all off. And he says, I am going to focus on my relationship with Christ, and that is where my gain is. 
And then what are the things that he gains? So he gains righteousness, not his own, but he gains the righteousness that comes through Christ. If you look in verse 9, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He is not dependent on his righteousness. He's dependent, his salvation is dependent on the righteousness of God, on the righteousness of Christ. Christ lived a perfect life, never sinned. My salvation is based not in what I do, but what in Christ has already done and accomplished. I gain the righteousness of Christ. That's way better than my righteousness. Right? So he gains the righteousness of Christ. Romans 3.20 For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former. Our righteousness is not our own. We gain that righteousness of Christ. We gain fellowship with Christ. He says in verse 10 that I may know him. Right? That word know is an intimate relationship. It's actually the same word that's used to talk about a man and a woman who are in marriage. They know each other. Right? that I may know him. We have fellowship with him. There is a relationship there. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There is this connection that happens, that we gain. We now know him. We have fellowship with him. And we gain power, and the power of his resurrection. So why, did, why is it so important that Christ was raised from the dead? Because it showed that he had the power over death and life. Right? Any man could claim to be Christ. But once a man dies, to be a, the ability to come back to life again is only there for God. Right? That is the power of God. The power over death. And we have that power. Right? We know, we can be fully confident that we too will be raised again to live eternally. So we gain power when we put off our own and we accept Christ. And then we can look forward to future glorification if we suffer with him and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by means by any means, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, right? So we are glorified in the future with him. Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So here on earth, there's no question we're going to suffer. It's not going to go well. We live in a fallen world. Christ suffered. We shouldn't expect any different. We're going to have difficult times. We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to sin against each other. Life is not going to be easy. But provided we suffer with him, again, with him, and that relationship with him, we do not turn away from him. We suffer with him. We also will be glorified with him. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he knew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he, re he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can stand against us? Where's the focus of those verses? Is it on us? The answer is no. It is on Christ and what he did. Right? So when Paul is, is reminding these these uh, the church at Philippi. He's saying, listen, remember, these people are going to try to lead you astray and make you believe that somehow you're going to, you have to earn your salvation by the way that you behave. I'm going to tell you that it's very different, right? Your salvation is based on your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not an outward thing. It's an inward thing. Now, that said, does that mean that there is nothing that happens outward, that the outward doesn't matter, right? And the answer is, no, the outward matters, right? Jesus said himself that a bad tree does not put off good fruit, and a good fruit, a good tree does not put off bad fruit, right? So we start on the inside. That's where Christ wants to focus. He wants to focus on the heart. But then what comes out of us should be reflective of what's on the inside. And so we have to be careful not to think, what then shall we sin so that may, grace may abound? That's what happens in Romans, and Paul addresses that very, very clearly. No, we cannot believe that somehow we can be pure on the inside, that the Holy Spirit will be working in us, and somehow on the outside we can still be propagating evil. Questions associated with this passage, because we're going to continue to go through kind of a similar track next week when we look at the rest of chapter 3, verse 12 and following, where he puts no confidence in his flesh. Questions or comments associated with this passage? Does it make me a little nervous? It makes me a little nervous. Right? How would you apply it to stuff that's going on in your day-to-day? -day? What's going on on your campus today? Mm -hmm. You guys are full of questions. When you think about like political ideology for both the right and the left right now, there's so many people who have confidence in, I believe this and this is the correct way to execute my faith and it's it's really true for both sides to say that I have confidence almost in being a good person because I align my views with this view that's just something I've observed that's almost become like religion in a way mm -hmm. especially in the current time that we're in yeah, the, the, the current political climate is crazy I, I just give you I'll just say that it is absolutely nuts you know where falsehood is allowed to propagate um, Unappeated, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got that point. So you're significantly older than the majority of us. Are you Thank you, David. I appreciate that. Out of full respect, right, David? <laughs> So there was a time 
So, so I'll make I'll answer the question, and then I'll come back to a, a different conclusion. Actually, um, so there, when when I was your age, character mattered in politics. You know, so if you were caught um, in an extramarital affair, you got driven out of politics. I mean, that was character matters. Character doesn't matter today in politics, which is disappointing um, to me. Um, leadership in general, character doesn't seem to matter. It does matter. It should matter. It it has changed. That the, the political environment has changed dramatically in the last 30 to 40 years, um, which is disappointing. All that said, I actually um, don't necessarily believe that, uh, that uh, Christianity as the religion of the nation, that falling away is actually a, a completely negative thing. I think the church becomes purified uh, when you have to stand up and say, this is what I believe versus it just being kind of the religion of the land. So I'm not one who says we need to try to convert uh, the nation back to Christian morals. I, I actually am one who says we shouldn't expect unbelievers to live in a Christian way. Um, we should actually, um, now, did, is it the right way to live? Absolutely. You know, uh, God gives us these rules to our benefit, right? Um, but uh, I, I don't expect someone who is an unbeliever to accept that necessarily. Um, and just kind of as an example, uh, if you... Uh, if you go to 1 Corinthians, um, there, we handle those outside the church very differently than we handle those inside the church. 1 Corinthians uh, 5, for instance, 9, says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world, or greedy swindlers or idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. But I am now writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat as such as one. Right? So there is a difference between how we handle people inside the church who act in a way that is contrary to God's word and people outside the church. Right? Paul says, listen, I'm not telling you to go try to tell everybody outside the world. Focus on the gospel to them. Understand that they are, don't tell them to try to clean up their lives. Tell them the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit will work on them to, to clean up their lives. And so in our nation, if we really want our nation to have Christian values, then the necessity is to have the majority of the nation be Christian. Not try to force it on people who don't want to be Christians. Right? Um, and so we should be proclaiming the gospel and then see if the Holy Spirit moves. If there's a revival. If there's not a revival, then God's not wanting a revival, right? So it's not up to us. Um, so we should focus there. You worship team people can leave if you'd like, um, since I'm holding you over. Um, so I have a little different perspective on that. I don't expect people outside the church uh, to, to live a life that's moral. I don't think we should. But we should uh, address people inside the church who are saying that you don't need to live a moral life. Christ said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, right? So for us to say somebody inside the church who says they're a believer that they can just live whatever way they want, that's not appropriate either. I mean, 1 Corinthians 6 says that um, we need to understand that the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, etc., will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will, if you are persistent in this behavior, you are not a believer, and you will not go to heaven. Um, and people need to understand that truth. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this day. I, I thank you for the opportunity we have in our nation to, to pause and take time uh, in our busy schedules and come uh, to a place of worship where we can gather as a body of believers and we can give each other encouragement, lift each other up, and where we can discuss and look and study your word and we can let the Holy Spirit use that uh, to drive us uh, towards sanctification. So we, we praise you. We give you the honor. Uh, we ask that we might honor you in our conversations as we go out in this week. Um, help others to see the hope that we have uh, and come to know you as well. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming.